Hello, this is Andy, and you're listening to Federal Andy. Episode 121, The Consequences of Not Prosecuting Trump. Hey everyone, this is Andy. It's Friday morning, March 10th, 2023. Last night, the breaking news on television was that there is a possibility that Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump, might very well be indicted. Are you excited about that? <laughs> uh, yeah. But this time, and I know you've heard this before, it looks like it could very well happen. Yes, I know, I know, I know. We've all heard that from people on television, from the folks who do podcasts and have YouTube channels. We've all heard that they think indictments are imminent. We even heard an official make that comment. Well, I take that back. She didn't say that indictments were imminent. She said decisions were imminent. And of course, I'm speaking of Fonnie Willis from Fulton County, Georgia, who's working on another investigation into Trump. Apparently, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of investigations going on and lots of court proceedings. This particular one, however, looks like it might actually have some motivation behind it. And the breaking news was that prosecutors in Manhattan, in New York, have invited former President Donald Trump to appear before the grand jury that is currently investigating allegations into his role in a hush money payment scheme and a cover-up. Now, this involves Stormy Daniels. And as we know, there has been an ongoing investigation into this matter for years. And at one point, it seemed like the investigation had kind of faltered or been dropped or put on the back burner, perhaps. Somebody said that it was dead, and then somebody else said, no, it's not dead. And anyway, it's apparently active again, or still, depending on how you want to look at it. But the reason why a lot of people think that this might actually come true this time, we might actually see indictments real is because the fact that the prosecutors have invited President 
former President Trump to speak to the grand jury, to testify to the grand jury, is due to a uh, law in New York which requires that potential defendants are notified in advance before anything official happens as far as charges, and they're invited to appear before a grand jury that is weighing possible charges against them. Now, who knows if Donald Trump is actually going to appear before this grand jury, but it seems to me that this is the last step that they would have to take before they actually do file charges. Now, if this actually happens, Trump would be the first former president ever to be indicted, and he would also be the first major presidential candidate under indictment while running for office. And Trump has said that he wouldn't even think about leaving the race if he were indicted. So he doesn't seem to think that that matters. <laughs> and as I discussed in a previous episode, there's nothing in the Constitution or in any of the laws that prevent someone from running for office while they're being, while they're under indictment or while they're under investigation. Now, once they're charged, and convicted of a crime, uh, certain crimes, there are stipulations in the various documents the Founding Fathers left behind for us to consult that say you can't hold office again. So that kind of gets into a sticky situation, doesn't it? You've got somebody who's got all these investigations going on, some of them are pretty serious, conspiracy, um, insurrection, sedition. Uh, those are all pretty serious crimes against the country, and those would prohibit someone from holding public office again. But what do you do if they're already in office? <laughs> that is something that's never been tested before. Seems to me it would be better to just keep them out of office to begin with so that that isn't even a problem. But at the pace that the DOJ and some of these other investigations are moving, it seems like uh, we're gonna get into the 2024 election season before anybody's ready to do anything unless they get on the move pretty quick. So the fact that Trump is facing criminal investigations right now involving his activities before, during, and after his presidency is pretty, pretty big deal, actually. So it'll be interesting to see exactly what happens. but. Uh, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg inherited investigations from his predecessor, who was uh, a man with the last name of Vance. Uh, 
And at one point, they it seemed like he had kind of decided that he wasn't going to pursue some things regarding Trump. He had a couple of prosecutors quit because they were so unhappy with his decisions. But this one, it looks like, is still kind of back on the uh, um, back on the front burner, so to speak. And this investigation, of course, involves the $130,000 payment that was made to a woman by the name of Stormy Daniels. She's an adult film star. And the payment was made late in October of 2016, which was not very long before the 2016 presidential election. And the intent was to silence her from going public about an alleged affair with Trump a decade earlier. Now, Trump has denied the affair, but there's actually some proof that shows payment was made to her, made to Stormy Daniels. And so you kind of have to wonder, well, why was she being paid $130,000? I mean, for services rendered? (laughs) Really? It costs $130,000? Boy, you must be really... Well, never mind. (laughs) Anyway, um, the paying hush money to somebody in and of itself isn't illegal. But it appears that the payment was from a Trump Trump organization bank account, uh, like a business account. And then it was reimbursed to Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, which most people will recognize his name. And by the way, Michael Cohen is supposed to be appearing before uh, prosecutors or a grand jury, I believe, today uh, for testimony. I think he's been <laughs> he's been in to talk to them several times. So it kind of seems that um, something may actually be going on here. But uh, Michael Cohen was has been referred to as Donald Trump's fixer. And apparently Cohen was the one that actually paid the money to Stormy Daniels. And then the money was reimbursed back to Michael Cohen in over a period of a couple of different payments. But falsifying business records is a misdemeanor in New York State. So... The thing that their prosecutors are actually considering is whether or not to charge Trump with falsifying business records in the first degree, because the intent, when he falsified records, the intent was to commit another crime or to aid in the concealment of another crime. And in that case, that would be a violation of campaign finance laws. That is a class E felony. And that carries a sentence of a minimum of one year and as much as four years. And so, yeah, that would kind of mess up his um, plans to be the president unless he does it from a jail cell. (laughs) 
we're we're in uncharted territory with him on just about everything truly from the moment he announced that he was going to run for office um everything that everything that we have been involved in with him is is a uh um a new door has been opened into some other kind of a world that we didn't even know existed because presidents in the past in most cases respected most of the laws i'm going to talk about some that didn't anyway but cohen is uh, uh meeting with uh, the prosecutors um today and apparently is on the schedule for Monday as well. So we'll have to see what happens, huh? But the point of this particular episode is to discuss some of the things that have happened in the past with powerful people in politics and how it was handled legally and why it is important this time that we do not do what we've done in the past, which is adopt an attitude that we must heal the country. And in order to heal the country, we just need to move forward and forget all of the crimes. And the reason that we can't keep doing that is because every time we do that, it sets a precedent. And so what I would like to talk about is I want to go back to the um, Nixon administration. And I want to discuss Nixon's vice president, a guy by the name of Spiro Agnew, who had to resign the vice presidency while he was in office because he was literally taking bribes, taking money. Nixon, of course, there was Watergate. The, uh, the deal that was cut with uh, Agnew was uh, if you resign, you don't have to serve any jail time. Nixon was re resigned because he was about to be impeached. That was back when the Republican Party realized it had to actually take action against some of its own if they broke the law very different than today's Republican Party. And Nixon, of course, was pardoned by Gerald Ford, who was the vice president that took Spiro Agnew's place when Agnew resigned. And then, of course, he became the president when Richard Nixon resigned. And that was not a popular decision because he lost to Jimmy Carter in 1976. But we also need to consider the fact that Richard Nixon, while he was campaigning to be the president in 1968, committed treason. Treason. And that was just kind of uh, swept underneath the rug. But President Johnson knew about it at the time. Do you think maybe if they had come out with the evidence in 1968 before the election that maybe Nixon wouldn't have been elected? Possibly. Should also point out that Ronald Reagan committed treason while he was running to be the president also, and that involved the Iran hostage crisis. And then, of course, the Iran-Contra 
when Reagan's vice president, George H.W. Bush, pardoned everybody in that little fiasco. So we have a history in the United States of pardoning powerful people with top jobs in the country. And we must stop doing that because every time we do that, it encourages somebody else down the line to commit even worse crimes and think that they can get away with it. Because I think Donald Trump is fully expecting that he is going to walk from all of these things because, well, the country has been a patsy at prosecuting these kinds of crimes in the past. And it's time that we change that. And we must change it now with Trump and with all of his cronies who were involved in the attempted coup of our democratically elected government back in January of 2021. So if you want to hear about some of these past issues, Stay tuned. Let's go back in time to 1968. 1968 was an election year in the United States of America. The president in the White House at the time was a Democrat by the name of Lyndon Johnson. He had been John F. Kennedy's vice president when Kennedy was assassinated. Johnson became president and then ran for the presidency again in 1964 and won. But when 1968 rolled around, Johnson could have theoretically run for president again because that first term in office, he just kind of inherited what was left of John F. Kennedy's term. So that didn't really count against Johnson. He could run for another four years. But Johnson decided that he didn't want to run, and he advised the Democratic Party that he would not seek, nor would he accept their nomination for the presidency. So the Democrats had to come up with another candidate, and they did. Hubert Humphrey was the Democrat running against the Republican in 1968, Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon had run against John F. Kennedy to be the president back in 1960, and of course lost to Kennedy. And 1968 was a tumultuous year in the United States. There were a lot of protests over the war in Vietnam. This was a conflict that had gone on for a very long time. And it's estimated that all told, 58,000 American soldiers died in the war. 2 million Vietnamese civilians and 1.1 million North Vietnamese and Viet Cong combatants died. And in an attempt to find some way to cease 
the bombing and the conflict, there were peace talks being held in Paris, which had been called the Paris Peace Talks. And in October of 1968, the month before the November election, the United States was ready to agree to, to some concessions, um, uh, one of which would be that they would stop bombing Hanoi, which was the capital of North Vietnam. But in exchange for the concessions the United States was making, it was going to want some concessions as well. And it was hoping that these concessions on both sides would halt the conflict. And it looked like it was a deal. Looked like they had a deal made. But then all of a sudden, the day before the 1968 presidential election was to be held, and this was a very close race between Hubert Humphrey, the Democrat, and Richard Nixon, the Nixon, or the uh, Republican. The South Vietnamese, for some reason, walked away from the table and ended negotiations. And as a result, the United States was involved in direct um, conflict for another five years. Many people kind of wondered what the heck happened because they were fairly certain that a deal was about to be made. And for a very long time, there were a lot of people that suspected that Richard Nixon's presidential campaign somehow had interfered in the Vietnam peace negotiations. Now, keep in mind, at this point, Richard Nixon was a private citizen and he was a presidential candidate running for office. So any involvement by a private citizen in talks like this would not be good for the United States of America and would actually be listed as committing treason. So the, the rumors were that the Nixon campaign interfered in the peace negotiations, the Paris peace talks, by sending messages through a Nixon aide by the name of Anna Chenault which would go then to the South Vietnamese embassy and then on to the president of South Vietnam. And it was believed that the Nixon campaign through Anna Chenault had promised the South Vietnamese bigger concessions, much bigger concessions than the Johnson administration was making if they would just wait and negotiate this after the election. And the whole point was that they did not want this 
to be announced prior to the election because that would be a big, big win for the Democrats, President Johnson, and for the incoming, hopefully the incoming Democrat uh, that would take the office after Johnson left. If the war was suspended, that would just have been a huge win because the war was, as I said, very, very unpopular with Americans, uh, many Americans at the time. So these rumors were persistent, but apparently there wasn't any evidence of these, um, of this rumor. And at the time, the Johnson administration felt like this was treason, and they considered going public with this information before the election, but decided to not do it because they didn't have absolute proof that Nixon himself was personally involved. And the reason that they had some information that made them feel like uh, there was involvement was that, uh, well, <laughs> uh, they would have had to have admitted that the reason that they knew that this had occurred was because the FBI had been intercepting phone calls from the South Vietnam Vietnamese ambassador and Anna Chenault, who was a U.S. citizen, and they would have also had to admit that the NSA was monitoring communications as well. And that was a that was a bad thing. That was a no-no. So they they kind of held off. But Johnson did become convinced that Nixon knew about what was going on. And apparently a message was sent to Nixon from Johnson via Senator Everett Dirksen, which told Nixon to back down and that he was engaging in treason. So now there has been more information made available because of, of time. And there have been tape recordings that have been declassified from the Johnson White House era. And those tapes did indeed show that the FBI had intercepted some of Anna Chenault's calls to the South Vietnamese ambassador. And her message to them was to basically just kind of hang in there through the election. Don't make any, don't make any decisions quite, just quite at this point. Johnson, President Johnson also ordered the FBI to surveil the Nixon campaign and to determine if Nixon was indeed personally involved in this sneaky little subterfuge behind the scenes that really was not in the best interest of the United States of America. So <laughs> there you go. Now we kind of have a little more information. There were also handwritten notes as well. And those uh, handwritten notes corroborated the 
the, the fact that Nixon knew about the plan. And apparently Nixon himself ordered Anna Chenault to talk to the South Vietnamese. And these notes um, were uh, taken, uh, written down in October 22nd of 1968 by H.R. Haldeman. That's a name that you probably recognize. He was uh, Richard Nixon's White House Chief of Staff. And of course, at that point, he would have been the uh, the incoming White House Chief of Staff because we that Nixon had not won the election at the point at that point, but uh, the uh, notes were taken written by Halderman personally on October twenty second, nineteen sixty eight, during a phone conversation with Nixon. And among those notes are Nixon's orders to quote keep Anna Chenault working on South Vietnam, and. And they also said any other way to monkey wrench it, anything RN can do, end quote. And the notes indicated that uh, Nixon also would have liked to have had nationalist Chinese businessman Louis Kung also pressure president, uh, the president of South Vietnam, not to accept any kind of a truce until uh, after the election and and they could do it with the new Nixon administration, assuming that he was going to win. And uh, the notes also said that uh, Nixon wanted his running mate Sparrow Agnew to pressure CIA Director Richard Helms, and that the uh, campaign sought to get uh, the president of Taiwan involved as well. So. These notes were uh, apparently available in the Nixon Presidential Library back in the 2000s, but people didn't realize exactly what they were. And I think someone who was researching a book came across them and, (laughs) oh, wow, what a revelation. There is also a tape recording of a White House uh, Oval Office conversation between President Johnson and Senator Everett Dirksen, where Johnson told Dirksen, this is is treason, when he was talking about what Nixon's uh, campaign was doing. And it's pretty difficult to say that, that Richard Nixon didn't know anything about this. So... It's pretty likely that the 1968 election was shifted because if the announcement had been made that there had been a, an agreement to cease fire, basically, uh, over in Vietnam prior to the election, which this would have been like the day before <laughs> or right before the election, that probably would have convinced a lot of people to vote for Democrats. Whereas in the absence of that news, they, the American people wanting a change, they probably thought, well, it's better to get some Republicans in there. Maybe they'll put an end to this war. So 
at any rate, um, there's a little bit of debate about it still, but it seems to me that even if the intervention with Anna Chenault and the Nixon campaign was not the only reason why the Paris peace talks, peace talks didn't wrap up before the election. If that wasn't the only reason, it uh, certainly shows that they intended to interfere. And I think that alone is treason. So this is a crime that was really not investigated more than just the president having the FBI and the CIA kind of monitor stuff. But nobody in Congress ever opened an official investigation and, and uh, called uh, Nixon in and put him under oath and asked him about his uh, um, cooperation in trying to uh, make sure that the Paris peace talks were not successful prior to the 1968 election. So that's a crime, treason that went uninvestigated and unpunished. And, you know, when you do something like that and you get away with it, it kind of emboldens you to do other crimes, doesn't it? Because, wow, crime paid, right? Richard Nixon won the 1968 presidential election, of course. And the person that Richard Nixon chose to be his vice president was a guy by the name of Spiro Agnew. And he spelled his first name S-P-I-R-O. But apparently he preferred to be called Ted, which I guess makes sense since Spiro is kind of a strange name. <laughs> One of the reasons that Richard Nixon chose Sparrow Agnew was because he felt that Agnew was not a person that sought the limelight. He kind of just blended in and was not confrontational in any manner. And so everything went great until they got into office. And within a short amount of time, Agnew put himself right out there front and center in the public. He delivered lots of speeches that were somewhat divisive. He was supportive of the Vietnam War and defended the United States' involvement in that war. He attacked the war protesters, the anti-war uh, peaceniks, I guess you could call them at the time. And he lambasted all of his enemies and attacked people who disagreed with him or criticized him, and he used uh, big phrases to describe the folks who were attacking him. But despite that, a lot of the Republicans in the country thought he was a pretty cool guy. 
And part of the reason is because the Watergate scandal, when it started uh, rolling around, didn't seem to involve Agnew in any way. And then word got out that the Justice Department was investigating Vice President Agnew for extortion and bribery. Now, Agnew said he he denied everything. Said he was not involved, was not guilty. And in September of 1973, Agnew spoke before the National Federation of Republican Women, which had thousands of women in the audience. And there were signs that said, Spiro is our hero. And when he addressed this investigation by the Justice Department, he said that, uh, I will not resign if indicted. And that was a quote. Well, his word was not worth much because two weeks later, Agnew resigned. And the reason for that is because he was given the option, we're going to file charges against you and here's the evidence we have and you're going to go to prison or you pay $150,000 in back taxes and you resign as vice president immediately. Well, Agnew took the plea bargain. And he was also a lawyer and he was disbarred. And he ended up uh, paying his bills by writing books. In 1976, he wrote quote, he wrote a book called The Canfield Decision, which was apparently a book about a vice president who was involved with militant Zionists and became consumed by his own ambitious desires. They just engulfed him. And then he followed that one up in 1980 with uh, another one that was basically autobiographical that was titled Go Quietly or Else. So, again, we have a person in the second highest office in the land who literally was on the take while he was vice president. I've mentioned this before on another episode, but Rachel Maddow, you probably recognize her from MSNBC. She has her own show on Monday nights on MSNBC. She has done a couple of podcasts and the first one that she did was called Bagman, and it was released several years ago. And it was about Spiro Agnew and his time in the White House and all of the corruption. And literally, people were bringing in bags full of cash to Vice President Agnew's official office, which is why the podcast is titled Bagman. It's eight episodes, if I remember correctly. They're about 45 minutes each. Very informative and very, very revealing at this time in history 
or United States politics is of interest to you, I highly, highly recommend that you listen to that podcast. It's very, very good. It's very well done, of course, because everything Rachel does is top notch. And it tells you all about this, uh, this era. And I lived through it, although I was a very young kid, but I do kind of remember Watergate and the stuff that went on around Watergate. And I don't remember, I did not remember a lot of the things that uh, Rachel uh, revealed in that podcast. So look for that. It's available, I think, pretty much any place you uh, can download podcasts. And uh, you will, I think you'll enjoy it. It'll be time well spent. Apparently, committing treason while running for office and having a vice president who was basically on the take while he was actually the vice president wasn't enough of a scandal for Richard Nixon. So on on June 17, 1972, there was a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C., which was located in the Watergate office building. That's where the name Watergate came from. And the folks involved in the break-in were caught, which began the second part of the Watergate scandal, which was the administration of President Richard Nixon that uh, was involved in attempts to cover up the involvement of that break-in, which is why sometimes they say it's not the crime, it's the cover-up, because Nixon wasn't actually personally involved in breaking in. He wasn't one of the people arrested, but he did attempt to cover it up and and conceal what had happened. So we have treason while Nixon was running for office in 1968. Then we have the issue with his vice president in 1973 being a crook. And then we have the break-in in 1972 while he, while Nixon was running for re-election for his second term in office. And when the news of the Watergate break-in erupted, it was all over the media, of course. And it became known to Americans that Nixon and his aides had not only engaged in illegal activities while he was running for re-election, but they attempted to cover up the evidence of their wrongdoing, which was in, in and of itself another crime. And impeachment were, uh, was something that was uh, mentioned at that point, and the process was underway. And Republicans, uh, I guess it was probably some Republican leaders at the time, told Nixon, "Um, you know what, dude, (laughs) Uh, we have the votes to impeach you. 
So you, your choice is to resign or to be impeached. And because Nixon at least had some degree of patriotism, and he realized that uh, putting the country through impeachment proceedings would be um, not a great thing for the country to have to endure, he decided that he would bow to public pressure. He His approval ratings were, I think, in the low 20s or upper teens at that point. They were pretty low. So he bowed to the to public pressure, and on August 9th, of 1974, Nixon officially ended his term, becoming the first American president in history to resign while in office. And at approximately um, noon, uh, that was the official time that Nixon resigned, and he left with his family in a helicopter from the White House lawn a few moments later. And moments, minutes after that, Vice President Gerald Ford was sworn in as the 38th President of the United States, and that occurred in the East Room of the White House. And he took the oath of office, and then President Ford spoke to the nation in a televised address, and he stated during his speech that uh, he made the comment, quote, my fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. <laughs> and uh, was it? I don't know. So Ford became the first president who entered office through appointment and was not elected to that position. And he had only been in office for eight months at the time that Richard Nixon resigned. So we had, within a period of about eight months, we had the vice president resign due to criminal activity, and then we had the president resign also due to criminal activity. Republicans, both of them, there's a pattern here, by the way. Um, so anyway, uh, the... Uh, um problem here is that on September the 8th of 1974, Ford um, issued to the former President Nixon a full, free, and absolute pardon for any crimes he committed while in office. And that was not a popular decision, and the pardon was condemned by the Democrats and much of the public and some of the Republicans at that time. So, anyway, um, once again, we have someone in a powerful position who has committed crimes and they basically walk away from it. Because Nixon lived quite well. 
in the lap of luxury for the remainder of his life. Uh, if anybody paid the price for Nixon's crimes, it would have been Gerald Ford because uh, he uh, ended up losing the 1976 presidential election to Jimmy Carter. And uh, then Ford died on December 26, 2006 at the age of 93. So he had a long life, but uh, his political career ended because of his choice or decision, I guess, to, to pardon Richard Nixon. And you have to kind of wonder, was there political pressure put on him to do that? Uh, who knows? Who knows? But anyway, that would be the first time that a president had been pardoned in that manner for committing a crime. So are we going to continue down the road of Republicans in high places committing crimes and not being held responsible for them? Oh yes, there's still a few more to go. Hang in there. On November the 4th, 1979, an Iranian militant student group called the Muslim Student Followers of the Imam's Line stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran, occupied the grounds and the embassy, and took more than 60 American diplomats and embassy staff hostage. The hostages were held for a total of 444 days. Immediately, of course, the Carter administration tried to secure the release of these hostages through a military operation, which failed spectacularly, and then continued through a series of secret negotiations to secure the release of the hostages. These negotiations were very unpleasant, and there were many, many tensions, of course, between Iran's hardliners and more moderate factions within Iran's government. So even on Iran's side, you couldn't find a group of people who could agree on what, should, what Iran should do to proceed in this situation. And there were a couple of times that the Carter administration was under the impression that it had reached a final agreement with the Iranians. And at the last moment, they saw the deal trashed by the uh, Iranian leader, the Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini. But nevertheless, Carter and his uh, administration uh, negotiation uh, Carter and his administration's negotiators kept working until literally the last moments of his presidency to secure the release of the hostages. And of course, at the very, very last moment, they were successful. On January 19, 1981, the United States and Iran signed the Algiers Accords which was an agreement 
uh, brokered by the Algerian government that actually secured the release of the hostages in exchange for concessions by the United States, including sanctions relief. And um, that was that regarded the release of frozen assets owned by Iranian powers that be. And it created the Iran United States Claims Tribunal that would remove cases against Iran from U.S. courts. And the hostages were released the very next day, January 20th, 1981, which just so happened to be the day that Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as the president. Now, there's a little bit of controversy because some scholars have said that the Reagan campaign was somehow involved in delaying all of this from happening until the very last moment, which, like the Nixon thing with the Viet with Vietnam, would have been treason. But it seems that the reason that they were released when they were had more to do with the timing of the deal, which was signed right before the uh, inaugural, inauguration of Ronald Reagan. And of course, at that point, it was too late to make a difference. But Republicans will want you to believe that it was the Iranians' fear of a strong Ronald Reagan Republican coming into office that would not take kindly to the fact that they were holding Americans hostage. That was the true reason the Iranians Iranians released the hostages when they did. And there's nothing to that. Marco Rubio has told that story, I think, and so has Ted Cruz. Both of them are absolutely devoid of any credibility whatsoever. So their version of what happened, uh, Rubio and Cruz, is just straight up false. But that was not really the, the big deal with, with Reagan. The scandal with Reagan became known as, uh, oh, it was called the Iran-Contra affair, the Iran-Contra scandal, Iran-Gate, depending on who you were talking to. Um, and it basically was a, a secret U- U.S. arms deal that agreed to trade missiles and other arms to, um, to free some Americans that were held hostage by terrorists in Lebanon. And it also used uh, funds from the arms deal to support an armed conflict in Nicaragua. And it was a stinky deal. And the, the deal created a political scandal that lasted for years. And it could have very well brought down um, the Ronald Reagan presidency. When Reagan won the White House back in 1980, he 
made some decisions that turned out to be not so popular with the American people at large. And because of those decisions, typically enough, at the midterms in 1982, the Republican majorities in the Senate and the House of Representatives were shellacked, to put it to use President Obama's term. And soon after that, the Democrats in Congress passed the Boland Amendment. And that amendment restricted the activities of the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the Department of Defense in foreign conflicts. And the amendment was really designed to target Nicaragua because anti-communist Contras in Nicaragua were battling the communist Sandinista government. And Ronald Reagan had gone on record as describing the Contras as, quote, the moral equivalent of the founding fathers, end quote. But of course, the basis for all of that power came from the cocaine trade. And that was the justification for Congress to pass the uh, Boland Amendment. So Ronald Reagan instructed his national security advisor, Robert McFarlane, to see if there was a way that they could help the drug dealing contras, regardless of the cost, political or otherwise. <laughs> so that's just not a good position for the United States president to take. Do you think? Sounds kind of kind of stinky, doesn't it? <laughs> so anyway, in the Middle East, the uh, United States didn't have very good uh, relationships with many of the nations. And needless to say, they were strained to the point where they were about to just bust open, really. Iraq and Iran were... Um, two of the big powers in the Middle East, and they were involved in a horrible uh, war. And at the same time, Iranian-backed terrorists in Hezbollah, in Hezbollah were holding hostage seven Americans, uh, diplomats, and diplomats, and private contractors in Lebanon. So Reagan told his advisors, find a way to bring these hostages home, period. No ifs, ands, or buts, just make it happen. So in 1985, McFarlane, that's uh, the National Security Advisor, took steps to make that happen. And he advised Reagan that Iran had approached the United States about buying some weapons for its war against uh, Iraq. And of course, this was on the QT, very, very quiet. And the reason this was a problem is because there was a trade embargo with Iran at the time. And that dated back to that uh, the revolution of Iran and the overthrow of Shah Pahlavi of Iran. 
And that was uh, during which the American hostages were held and all of that. So the, the, the Iranian hostage crisis resulted in this trade embargo from the United States with Iran, which was still in place at that point. And there were members of Reagan's administration who said, no, 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 you can't do this. Um, Secretary of State George Shultz and Secretary of Defense Casper Weinberger in particular, sorry, I just uh, hit my mic, uh, were against this plan. And McFarlane argued that uh, this arms deal with Iran would not only release the hostages, but that it could also help the United States improve its relations with Lebanon. And that would make sure that Lebanon had an ally, or that would make sure that Lebanon became an ally in a region where the United States desperately needed to have an ally. So the arms deal would also secure funds that the CIA could funnel secretly to the Contra insurgency in Nicaragua. So McFarlane and CIA director William Casey agreed with Reagan and Reagan pushed ahead with the deal over the objections of uh, Schultz and Weinberger. Oliver North got involved, and the uh, there was a newspaper in Lebanon that reported the arms deal between the United States and Iran in 1986, which was after Reagan had been reelected, of course, for a second term. And by that time, 1,500 American missiles had been sold to Iran for $30 million. Three of the seven hostages in Lebanon had been released. And there was uh, an Iran-backed terrorist group that, uh, after the release of the three hostages, later took another three Americans hostage. So (laughs) we didn't gain anything hostage-wise. And Reagan denied that he had negotiated with Iran or with the terrorists. But he ended up retracting that statement a week later. And while all of this was going on, the Attorney General at the time was a man by the name of Edwin Meese, M-E-E-S-E, and he launched an investigation into this weapons and arms deal. And it was discovered that about $18 million of the $30 million that Iran had paid for the weapons was unaccounted for. Huh, where in the heck did that money go? Then Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North of the National Security Council came forward and said that he had diverted the missing funds to the Contras in Nicaragua who used them to buy weapons. And North said that this action was taken with the full knowledge of the National Security Advisor, Admiral John Poindexter. And he had, Oliver North said that he assumed Reagan was also aware 
of his efforts. <laughs> so the uh, there was a Texas senator by the name of John Tower who formed what was known as the Tower Commission. And uh, the president appointed this uh, Senator Tower to investigate the administration's involvement in this Iran-Contra weapons deal. And the conclusion was that Reagan's lack of oversight had enabled those working under him to divert the funds to the Contras. Okay, so once again, the guy at the top, oopsies, just didn't do his job. And um, another congressional investigation was held, and in 1987, uh, it uh, uh, brought in people who were involved in all of this, including Reagan, and they had hearings that were televised nationally. This is, I think, when uh, Reagan um, probably was having issues with Alzheimer's, although it hadn't, I don't believe, had been, if it had been diagnosed at that point, the American public was not made aware of it. And uh, an independent counsel uh, by the name of Lawrence, Wal Lawrence Walsh began an eight-year investigation into the Iran-Contra affair. And in all, 14 people were charged, including North, Poindexter, and McFarlane. Reagan was never charged, simply because he just didn't remember anything about it. And then, of course, in 1992, George H.W. Bush, who had been Reagan's vice president all eight years of the Reagan administration, was uh, running for uh, was had been running had run for president to follow the Reagan terms, and he was elected president in 1988, and he preemptively pardoned Weinberger. So once again, you've got someone who was a vice president of a president who was in trouble coming into office after and pardoning people that were involved. Uh, McFarland was charged with four counts of withholding information from Congress, which was a misdemeanor, and he was sentenced to two years probation and a $20,000 fine. North was charged with 12 counts uh, relating to conspiracy and making false statements, and he was convicted in uh, his trial, but the case was dismissed on appeal due to a technicality. And since then, North has worked as a conservative author and critic and television host and head of the NRA. They do protect their own, don't they? Poindexter was initially indicted on seven felonies and was tried on five. He was found guilty on four of the five charges, and he was uh, sentenced to two years in prison, and uh, his convictions were 
um, vacated later. Additionally, there were four CIA officers and five other government contractors who were also prosecuted. They were all found guilty um, on charges ranging from conspiracy to perjury to fraud. And uh, one of them, a private contractor, Thomas Kleins, ultimately did serve a little bit of time in prison. But Reagan promised the American people that he would never negotiate with terrorists. And <laughs> Reagan was popular the whole time that he was in office, uh, despite the fact that uh, inflation was running rampant and we had recessions and it was a rather tumultuous time in the country. And Later on, Reagan admitted that uh, selling arms to Iran was a mistake. And that was uh, during his testimony before uh, Congress. But uh, his legacy among Republicans is pretty much intact. Although I would have to say that today's Republicans um, probably would think of Ronald Reagan as a rhino, Republican in name only, because they have become so extreme that even somebody like Reagan, who was relatively conservative, uh, just would not fit in with today's wacky Republican party. In the interest of fairness, I do want to mention that a Democrat has also been involved in a scandal, and that Democrat would be Bill Clinton, who was the president from 1993 through 2000, and he was under investigation almost from the moment he set foot in the White House for the first time. An independent counsel had been appointed to look into a land deal that Bill and his wife, Hillary Clinton, had been involved in years before he took office. And from that point on, the counsel, the investigation had expanded and grown into this big, huge investigation that looked into other elements of Clinton and his presidency. And in 1994, the panel of judges were um, uh, replaced the, the first Clinton independent counsel with uh, a guy by the name of Ken Starr. That happened in 1994. And it was... Um, Star, who ended up uh, expanding the investigation to include a possible affair by the president. And this was after he was uh, approached by Linda Tripp, who was a former White House secretary who had befriended a White House aide by the name of Monica Lewinsky. And Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky became friends. 
unless you consider the fact that one of the friends is recording your telephone conversations for personal use later, because Linda Tripp was recording their phone conversations. <laughs> so anyway, in the midst of all of this, so so they're looking into an affair that Clinton had while he was president with this White House aide, Monica Lewinsky. And he then Clinton was accused of sexual misconduct in another lawsuit, separate lawsuit, by a woman named Paula Jones, who was a former employee uh, for uh, Clinton when he was the governor of Arkansas. Jones sued Clinton in 1994 for sexual harassment, and it set off a legal battle that lasted for years and included a Supreme Court decision in 1997 that made clear a president could face a civil lawsuit while in office. And as a part of that case, Clinton was asked during a grand jury proceeding about the Lewinsky affair. And he made a mistake because he wasn't honest with the grand jury. Clinton later settled the deal. Uh, it was an $850,000 out-of-court settlement with Jones. So that went away. And... That happened about a month before uh, the uh, Clinton impeachment began. And when Starr published his conclusion, conclusions of the investigation, it included 11 possible impeachable offenses ranging from perjury and obstruction of justice to witness tampering and abuse of power. Do those charges sound familiar? Obstruction of justice? Uh, witness tampering, abuse of power. Yeah, that sounds sounds like it was more recent than back in the 90s, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, the uh, Republicans finally uh, got the charges down to four articles of impeachment. Two of them were for perjury in, in depositions that didn't have anything to do with the grand jury. And they were, you know, for obstructing Congress. Uh, th that didn't make it out of the House of Representatives. But Clinton was impeached for perjury after he lied to the grand jury in the Jones case and also for obstruction of justice. So, coming out of the House of Representatives, Clinton was impeached for perjury and for obstruction of justice. The Senate part of the Clinton debacle was a true spectacle that featured videotaped testimony from Monica Lewinsky and some of the more embarrassing questions from Clinton's grand jury testimony was played back on the Senate floor. The entire spectacle, truly was a spectacle, uh, consumed the country for a year. And you may recall the talk about the definition of what is 
is, the word is, what does that mean? Bottom line is Clinton lied about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. That was something that happened while he was president and he shouldn't have, shouldn't have done that. But bottom line, that was between him and Hillary and Monica, in my opinion. And when they started asking about it, I think Clinton should have told them it was none of their darn business and to butt out. After all, it was uh, a consenting between two consenting adults. And you can say what you want to about Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, but they're still married as opposed to Donald Trump, who's now on marriage number three and has cheated with all three of his wives. And I should point out that during this investigation, I seem to recall that uh, Newt Gingrich, who was one of the top Republicans, was involved in an affair and he was married. And I seem to recall his wife was in the hospital being treated for cancer while he was having an affair and he asked her for a divorce. I think it was shortly after she got out of the hospital. I hope he waited until after she got out of the hospital. And I seem to remember that Ken Starr had something going on as well. So hypocrites, <laughs> definitely hypocrites. At any rate, Clinton continued to have uh, um, good job approval ratings through the remainder of his presidency. And that has caused many to feel that if you try to impeach somebody, perhaps unjustly in the case of Clinton, that uh, there can be a backlash for doing that. At the end of the Clinton presidency, Bill Clinton's vice president, Al Gore, ran for president, and his competitor was George W. Bush, son of George H. W. Bush. George W. Bush was the former governor of Texas and the former owner of a failed Texas oil company. What is it with Americans where they keep voting for the same families over and over and over again? It's almost like only a handful of families can really be president. Gosh, that almost seems like a dynasty or something, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, some of you may remember the election in 2000 was a problem the hanging chad down in Florida. Why is it always Florida? Florida, Florida, Florida. Anyway, yeah, they uh, had a hard time deciding what the vote was down in Florida because they had some kind of a punch thing where you had to take a little pin and punch holes in a ballot. And there was a little uh, cut on the ballot where when you punched it, it was supposed to fall out and that would create a hole. And then the machine would read 
the hole, but some of the little uh, pieces of the ballot didn't punch out all the way, or some of them had one where there was an indentation in it, and then there was another one that was punched out or something. It was There was weird weirdness from the beginning. And that, of course, is the time when the Supreme Court of the United States got involved in a state's issue, in a state's election issue, and decided that George W. Bush would be the president. And it was later determined after audits were done that Al Gore actually won Florida. I think it was 500 votes or something like that. But of course, we didn't have Al Gore as president. We had George W. Bush, baby Bush, as some of us call him. And of course, the Democrats immediately showed up at the U.S. Capitol and broke windows and smeared feces and all over the walls and peed all over the place and beat up Capitol Police officers. No, no, that didn't happen. Just another contrast between the Democratic Party and then the Republicans. There is a difference here. And the eight years that we were inflicted with Bush were not good ones for the country because on September 11th of 2001, you might recall that two commercial jet airliners had been hijacked and were crashed into the World Trade Center towers in New York City, which... Uh, for whatever reason you want to believe, collapsed, pancaked down, killing 3,000-plus Americans. Another plane hit the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and uh, another plane went down in uh, Pennsylvania, I believe. And that was, uh, I think headed somewhere else, but by that point, due to people having cell phones, smartphones, things like that, they knew that there was something going on, and the passengers on the plane decided that they were going to try to intervene and protect lives on the ground if they possibly could. Hopefully, they could protect their own lives, but ultimately, the plane crashed and they all died. Sadly enough, Baby Bush and his administration ignored a presidential daily briefing that was presented to them a month earlier, stating that Al-Qaeda was determined to strike the United States using commercial jet aircraft. And the response from the Bush administration was nothing. Bush was on vacation at his ranch in Crawford, Texas. Couldn't be bothered. So much for being safer with Republicans in charge, huh? Yeah, you betcha. According to the best estimates that uh, have been made available, about 250,000 people have died as a result of George W. Bush and Tony Blair, who was the Prime Minister of of the United Kingdom, uh, they decided to invade Iraq in 2003. 
in response to the 2001 um, terrorist attack. And the government in the UK later released an investigative report that said that uh, the intelligence officials knew ahead of time that the war would cause massive instability and societal collapse, and it would make the problem of terrorism around the world worse, and that Blair and Bush, knowing all of this, ahead of time, went ahead with the war anyway. Yeah. So, in October of 2002, baby Bush told the world that Saddam Hussein had a massive stockpile of biological weapons. And... Later on, in 2004, CIA Director George Tennant informed lawmakers that uh, there was no specific information available to the CIA that indicated what types or quantities of weapons uh, agents or stockpiles uh, were at Baghdad's disposal. Fact of the matter is this massive stockpile that uh, Bush said Saddam Hussein had was made up. It was a lie. didn't exist, and Bush knew it. In December of 2002, Bush declared that, uh, quote, we do not know whether or not Iraq has a nuclear weapon, end quote. And the national intelligence estimate did not say that. Again, going back to CIA Director George Tennant, uh, he later testified, uh, quote, we said that Saddam did not have a nuclear weapon and probably would have been unable to make one until 2007 to 2009, end quote. At the time, this national intelligence estimate was not known to the American public. So all the American people knew was that their president had told them that they did not know whether or not Iraq had nuclear weapons or a nuclear weapon. But based on that intelli national intelligence estimate, Bush knew. He had information that told him they don't have it now, and it would be 2007 at the earliest before they could have one. But he lied. He lied and said he didn't know. And the reason he did that is because he wanted to promote fear. Terror, 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 fear, fear, fear. That was the Bush, the baby Bush presidency. On a September 2002 appearance on CNN, Condoleezza Rice 
made a statement that the aluminum tubes that had been purchased by Iraq were, quote, only really suited for nuclear weapons programs, end quote. However, at the time, the nuclear experts at the Energy Department said exactly the opposite. (laughs) They said that it was not only was it very possible the tubes were for non-nuclear purposes, but that it was very likely that they were. (laughs) So they kind of said, nah, you know, these probably are not suited for nuclear weapons. But even more dire comments about these tubes from other agencies were taken by administration officials and wildly exaggerated. (laughs) Again, to instill fear in the American people. You know, we've got to get to them before they come to us again. That kind of fear, that terror. But to say that they were only really suited for nuclear weapons was a lie. wasn't true. It was not true. It, in fact, was more than likely that they were not particularly suited for nuclear weapons and that they were probably for some other type of use. And Vice President Dick Cheney repeatedly told lies, and uh, he mentioned that a report uh, told him that 9-11 conspirator Mohammed Atta had a meeting in Prague with an Iraqi intelligence officer. Well, the CIA and the FBI both had determined at this point prior to Dick Cheney making these comments that this meeting actually never happened. Didn't happen. But that didn't stop Dick Cheney from presenting it as a fact. So Dick Cheney lied. Lied to the American people. He lied to the world. On September 18th, 2001, Condoleezza Rice received a memo that summarized intelligence on the relationship between Iraq and Al-Qaeda. And the conclusion of this memo was that there was little evidence that there were any links between the two of them. But despite this memo, Baby Bush continued to say that Hussein was a threat because he's dealing with Al-Qaeda. So, (laughs) so you have memos that have dictate, have, have said that the intelligence, multiple intelligence agencies have determined that there's not a link between 
Iraq and Al-Qaeda, but yet a year later, more than a year later, George W. Bush, baby Bush, is on TV telling everybody that uh, Hussein was a threat because he's dealing with Al-Qaeda. Did he not know? Did he just, was he just completely out of the loop or was he lying? I'm going to go with number two. He was probably lying since that seems to be something that he was accustomed to doing at this point. In August of 2002, Dick Cheney declared, quote, simply stated, there's no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. End quote. And apparently this was said at a time when there was intelligence that had not shown anything of the sort. So why are they making these wild statements? Probably knowing that there's no truth to them. Could it be that they were trying to cover up for their um, mishandling of the advisory warning them ahead of time that there could very well be something happening? It sure seems to me. But it's pretty obvious that on multiple occasions, Baby Bush and members of his administration wildly exaggerated or stretched the truth or outright lied about information uh, supposedly provided to them by U.S. intelligence. And they did all of this on TV every time they were on TV. People lied to the American people, people that the American people voted to represent our interests and to protect us and our constitution and our country and failed to do their jobs and then turned around and lied to us about it. And people died because of those lies. And those are actually facts. And nobody has ever been held accountable for any of this. Nobody. Don't you think it should be a problem when the president of the United States of America and the vice president and the secretary of state and all of these top people, secretary of defense, Don Rumsfeld was involved in that too. Don't you think it's a problem when they lie to the American people and the rest of the world to start a war that has cost the American taxpayers trillions of dollars and untold lives because we have a pretty good idea of how many troops we lost, but how many families got destroyed because of this? How many lives were ruined because of injuries from limbs blown off or other types of injuries? Did anybody get impeached for this? No. No, they did not. And I would say that that definitely is an impeachable 
offense in addition to being a crime against humanity. I should add that the baby Bush era in America involved lots of things besides lying to the American people and the world about weapons of mass destruction. It also revealed that the United States was torturing prisoners, which is against, uh, <laughs> well, it's pretty much against every other treaty or convention that we've ever agreed to. We, well, not we, but the Bush administration also outed a covert CIA agent who was operating undercover and was tasked with investigating nuclear proliferation around the world. And her outing not only exposed her, but it also endangered the lives of many of her contacts around the world. So the next administration that followed baby Bush was the Barack Hussein Obama administration. President Obama served two terms very popular for most of his presidency. He was an African-American, the first African-American president of the United States. His mother was white and his father was black. And his administration was pretty much unmarked by scandal. The only real scandal involving President Obama was from outside, namely a New York real estate magnate by the name of Donald Trump, who has a history of racism, didn't like the fact that a black man became president. And there was this, <laughs> basically, just created out of nothing, really, this accusation that President Obama wasn't an American citizen and as such could not truly, legally be the president. Now, he had a birth certificate that showed that he was born in Hawaii. I think it was 1959. And there was a notice in the newspapers in Hawaii back when he was born, that he was born. But somehow his mother or his grandparents or somebody was clever enough to consider the fact that at some point down the road, they would have to prove or they would want to prove that he was born in the United States. And so they strummed up all of this documentation. None of it was legitimate. 
they said. Trump was going to have evidence that proved he was not born in America. Finally, uh, Obama did come up with, I think, the long form of his birth certificate. And I don't remember if it was hospital administrators or whatever, but there was enough people came out and said, yes, he was born here. Shut up. And that finally kind of shut some of them up. But I would bet you if you ask some Trump followers today, they'd still tell you that President Obama wasn't born in America. Anyway, but his family has set a pretty good example there. As I said, no scandals. His uh, wife was an attorney, successful attorney. They had two very nice young uh, daughters, well-mannered, respectful, unlike the baby Bush daughters that uh, were sometimes getting, well, they were in trouble from time to time. So can't really complain about that. I would say that the complaints I have about President Obama, and I'll tell you, I voted for him both times. Uh, I wish he had done something about Bush and the lies because uh, that is a crime and it went unpunished. And I think it should have been investigated. I think there should have been uh, committees in Congress investigating the lies. And I think all of this should have come out and that uh, baby Bush should have probably been impeached and convicted in the Senate along with some others in his administration. And after that, we know what happened. Donald Trump and nothing but one crime after another, one lie after another, one violation of protocol, one violation of policy after another, after another, after another. He benefited personally from being the president of the United States by accepting money from foreign governments, which was a violation of the Foreign Emoluments Clause in the Constitution. Nobody ever did anything about it because the Republicans were in control of Congress and stuff at the time, for most of it anyway. And... um, We had members of his family working in his administration, people who were not qualified for those positions, people who could not qualify to get a security clearance for those jobs. We had him making uh, deals with, uh, or trying to make deals with foreign leaders, namely the leader in Ukraine wanting the leader to open up an investigation and announce it to the world that he was investigating possible crimes of the Bidens. Didn't really care if they actually were doing it. He just wanted him to tell the world that he was going to do it. And in return, he'd released the money that Congress had already set aside for Ukraine or weapons or whatever. Retaliation for people who were whistleblowers that actually 
felt that there was a crime committed and they got retaliated against. Twice impeached in the House of Representatives, which was controlled by Democrats, and twice failed to convict in the Senate, which was run by Republicans, who both times had sham trials. Well, actually, the second time there was no trial at all because of finagling by the Republican Senate leader, Mitch McConnell. So, kind of a bad deal. And we had a, a uh, investigation into Trump's actions, and the Mueller report identified multiple items where Trump had committed obstruction of justice. But nobody acted on that. And now we have heard about the secret documents, the failed coup, the attempt to rig the 2020 election, the ongoing lies about the 2020 election, the ongoing lies about all of the Democrats coming from Trump and his supporters and his followers. It's unreal. Do you think that maybe if Richard Nixon had been charged, tried, and prosecuted for treason back in 1968 on that Vietnam thing that maybe people like uh, Trump would have given it a second thought? Do you think maybe if Nixon had been uh, charged and tried for Watergate? How about uh, Reagan and that Iran-Contra deal? Think that there were some crimes committed there? Maybe if uh, somebody hadn't agreed to look the other way or pardon people, that maybe we wouldn't have all of the problems that we have facing us today with Donald Trump and his followers? How about Bush and Cheney lying and starting a war that cost the American taxpayers trillions of dollars and lots of lives of our troops? I suggest the fact that we have looked the other way over and over and over and over again under the pretense of getting back to normal. We're divided. We must unite again and move forward. Underneath that BS, we now have a worse problem than we've had in the past. And I can tell you right now, if Trump and his cronies get away with this, something even worse is at our is is at the the front of at the. What am I trying to say? My vocabulary is gone again. Something else is lurking down the road. Something wicked this way comes, and it's going to be worse than what we're dealing with right now. And it could very well be the complete loss of our democracy and the fact that we all will be forced to live under an authoritarian regime where we do have rigged elections. We think that we're all voting like they do in Russia, 
but the votes down in Russia don't really mean anything because they already know who's going to be the winner. We'll have the same thing here. And we'll be told that they're doing it because it's what's best. Folks, they are already choosing what books we can read. They're already making decisions about health care choices for women. There are Republicans in state legislatures right now that are writing bills to provide the death penalty to women who have abortions because life is so sacred and so precious. It's true. There are bills being written that would have a penalty of death for women who have abortions. Ron DeSantis down in Florida wants to be the nation's first fascist dictator, I think. He's the one that's picking out all the books you can and cannot read. He's getting involved in the business of privately owned corporations. He is dictating that schools cannot teach an accurate history of the America, of the United States of America because we don't want people to know how black people were treated in the past. We don't want them to know about slaves. He's a racist, and he's a liar, and he's probably corrupt. He's got a bunch of his cronies sitting on committees and boards and panels. Donors, donors. They gave him lots of money, so they get rewarded for that. And so far, no problem. Rick Scott is a senator right now from Florida. Before he was a senator, he was the governor of Florida. Before he was the governor of Florida, he was the CEO or chairperson of a big health care insurer. And they were convicted of the biggest dollar value Medicare fraud ever in the history of Medicare and find, I think, over a billion dollars, a lot of money. Company's closed now. But these numbnut idiots in Florida rewarded his bad behavior by making him the dang governor. What the hell, Florida? I live in a red state, and I've got miserable, horrible, awful people representing me. Well, actually, I have zero representation where I live. Zero. There are a handful of people that are Democrats that are actual Democrats, not Dinos. But other than that, for the most part, the people in my state are horrible, awful. It's a red state, just awful. So I don't have any representation, none at all. But they'll sure wag a Bible in front of your face and tell you what good Christians they are while they lie and cheat and steal. America, those of you who hear this podcast, I hope you will share it. I know I'm not the best commentator or podcaster there is out there, but I think people need to remember the kind of stuff that's gone on in the past, and those things have set the standard for what is happening now, 
And what happens now is going to set the standard for what happens in the future. And if you think what we have right now is bad, you just wait. If the Department of Justice and some of these folks in these various states that are doing investigations on Trump and his cronies, if they don't prosecute, then we're in big trouble because that's going to set the standard for even worse things in the future. And I don't think any of us want that because I think everybody's pretty stressed right now. As a country, we're pretty divided right now. And we've got a large section of the population that is completely out of touch with what's really going on in this country because they watch a particular cable channel that says it's news, but it's not. And even in the face of documentation showing that the people on that channel don't believe a word that they're saying to the viewers, those viewers are sticking by them. So apparently it's more important to be told what you want to hear than it is to be told the truth. And that is a pretty sad state of affairs, isn't it? And with that, I'm going to let you go and try to get this finished up and get it sent on its way so that uh, it should be available by this evening to most of you. Some of you may not get it till tomorrow. At any rate, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you listening. I hope you have a great evening and a great weekend. The next uh, Federal Andy is uh, scheduled for tomorrow. It'll be Saturday. Have a great evening and weekend unless you have other plans. Thank you for listening. I would be grateful to you if you'd subscribe and share this podcast to let your friends and family know about it. You can also find me on Twitter at Federal Andy, and I'd be really grateful if you would follow me. I usually follow back. Be happy, safe, and healthy, and I'll hopefully be talking to you again next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.